Thank you. Much appreciated. And so uh, this morning, uh, it's uh, a joy to be able to come and to talk about the scriptures that we have. Did I see that Tiffany was here this morning? Yeah, there she is. Have you learned anything yet? Good. I'm so glad. Tiffany, it's great to see you. And uh, the Lord bless you. And uh, Tiffany is, uh, well, find out what she's doing. Talk to her. And, uh, and it's a joy, but uh, it's good to see you. So this morning, we actually come to this section of Scripture, which uh, is one that um, I, I've always appreciated greatly. And it's one, I guess, that as you begin to think about it, simply gives us a good outline as to what preaching, in terms of the proclamation of the gospel particularly, should be all about. Uh, I asked if Brian would read the whole of the section of Scripture because... During the course of the next few weeks, not next week, but after that, uh, and then uh, just having a break for Christmas, but we're going to look at the content of what is uh, involved or what is contained here in uh, the message, the sermon, which is the first sermon that was preached in the era of the church, and it is uh, recorded for us here in Acts chapter 2. But I want to talk about the context of apostolic preaching. Now, I realize that as I prepared to come and to do this, I spoke to my wife about it, and this was something that she was not overly familiar with. And I've spoken to several of you, and if you are one of those people that I've spoken to and asked you the question, it's one of those uh, uh, things that I grew up with and had a clear understanding, at least I believed I did, as to what apostolic preaching was all about. But it strikes me that this is something which we don't uh, perhaps talk about as often as we should do today. I think the problem is that the word apostolic has other meanings, um, or rather, it has meanings which have been generated uh, by people who have, uh, pr- for example, used the name or the word apostolic in the name of their church and so on. And they've tended to look at the fact that there are apostles today who are being brought in. Therefore, there is a new apostolic ministry. And I'm really not talking about that at all. What I want to talk and share with you on uh, this morning is what we have here. Here, as God's Word, particularly the 27 books of the New Testament. Because when we begin to refer to apostolic uh, doctrine, apostolic teaching, apostolic preaching, we discover that this is what we are talking about. It's uh, a sad situation that we have uh, commented on previously of the fact that today preaching is not held in perhaps the highest esteem as it should be. It's almost as if a, a pastor of a church has become some sort of, um, of uh, MC, uh, somebody who has come to uh, simply bring all the different components of the service, perhaps in a Sunday morning together, uh, rather than to come with the intent and the purpose of preaching. Two weeks ago, you remember that we looked at the fact that uh, preaching has uh, got a bit of a bad press in some respects. Uh, Preaching is sometimes described as being the least effective way of explaining anything to anybody. And yet, it is preaching that we see very clearly that is spoken of in the Scriptures in terms of the proclamation of the Gospel, for example. Yes, we live the Christian life. Uh, We are able to talk to people. We're able to share our love of the Lord Jesus, the testimony that we have. But also we discover that preaching does have a place. And if you look through the scriptures, there are sermons after sermons. And of course, the one that we have had here this morning, uh, which Brian has read to us, would have taken about three minutes. But of course, we recognize that uh, contained within uh, the original message that Peter had given, there was many other words 
that he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now notice the emphasis in which uh, there was a preparedness for Peter to stand up and say, saved, uh, be saved from this generation. And he exhorted them. In other words, he puts the effort into it. He wants people to understand that there needs to be um, a, a, an action that they take to be saved from this perverse generation. Now, we recognize, of course, that without the Holy Spirit, we're unable to understand the things of God. But at the same time, there is the fact that we exhort people, and I do to all of you this morning, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. To call now to be saved and exhort you to do that. I think sometimes, uh, and I say this uh, in fact, I read this from Sinclair Ferguson, which surprised me. Uh, um, uh, he, he, he obviously knows some Dutch people, and uh, he says, look, the sermon can be longer than the length of time that it takes to suck a Queen Wilhelmina peppermint. Okay? Now, for those of you from a Dutch background here, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And I thought it was quite funny that he had made that point in the book that I had uh, read some of here. Uh, we're also reminded, of course, that the issues of listening to preaching is not something that is new. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21 said, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, I agree that preaching needs to be enthusiastic. I try to be enthusiastic each week. And it's a joy to be able to come and to talk about this subject this morning. And it's uh, a, a joy to be enthusiastic. There's no point in coming if you're not enthusiastic concerning the gospel or the word that is preached. I want to read some verses, if I may, from uh, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm just very conscious that time, as always, will be uh, against us, but we'll see how we do. And I just felt that I needed to read these verses so here in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, there's some lovely verses which help us, particularly those of us who are called of the Lord to proclaim and to preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul is, preached, is speaking to Timothy, and he's talking about this subject. And he says in verse 1, I charge you, I implore you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing, and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, be ready out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, wanting to hear everything else but the message. And they will heap upon they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And then verse 5, interesting, it's in the same section. It says, but you be watchful in all these things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. What lovely verses these are, what lovely words they are. Because Paul is telling Timothy to preach the word. Uh, the meaning that is here is uh, literally to herald the good news. To be able to go out and to proclaim, you've seen perhaps the town crier that England used to have, to try and get information disseminated 
amongst the population and the town crier would be given the message and he'd go out and he'd ring a bell and he'd say, oh yay, oh yay, and then ask everybody to listen to the message that was to be brought. And that's the picture that we have here, is to come without fear and to present the word of God and to be a herald of good news, to proclaim the gospel. And in these words, we see the clear link between teaching, uh, sorry, preaching and evangelism. But you be watchful of all things, enduring afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so often today it seems that pastors are not interested in evangelism. And yet what's the tenor of the New Testament? You know, it's not just preaching in churches. It is to go out into the world and to proclaim the gospel. It is to go out into the highways, the byways, wherever it is for us to proclaim the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But so often today it seems that pastors have lost this link or indeed it has been weakened or it has been reduced or it has been distanced between preaching and evangelism. Sometimes we get the person in who's able to do the evangelism, the evangelizing part, and the pastor feels that we have to call in somebody special to be able to do that. But you know, as we read the New Testament particularly, we understand very clearly that preaching should be evangelistic. Often at best, the gospel is not preached with passion and conviction in some churches today, it seems. But verse 40 of chapter 2 of Acts says, listen, and, and as, we, as we read it, we listen to the passion and the urgency with which Peter speaks when he says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. I have to say this, that an unscriptural focus, for example, upon election combined with an unspiritual lack of focus on the responsibility of man, often reduces in frequency or even eliminates altogether the free offer of the gospel. And so we have to recognize what it is that we are led of the Lord and in our preaching to proclaim. Our Lord speak, uh, spoke very clearly to Nicodemus, didn't he, in John 3, verses 14 and 15 about being lifted up and being offered. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, we're told, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The preaching of the apostles did not hesitate to state the gospel, nor did they hesitate to implore people to repentance and belief and trust in the Savior. In Acts 2, we have the very first sermon, as I've mentioned already, that was preached in the era of the church. Let's look at what happens as Peter responds to the crowd who are gathered before him. And all we're going to do today is to essentially just look at this opening uh, section, but then we plan uh, during the f uh, course of the next few weeks to look at the message itself and to see what it was that Peter was proclaiming to the people. So verse 14 reads, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and heed my words. So firstly, and an interesting thing that we see that happens here, is that Peter stands up. Now, in and of itself, standing up to preaching makes sense, doesn't it? 
Because if you want to be heard in a crowd, then you need to stand up. You need to be able to raise your voice and to speak clearly. You need to be able to have that sense of authority, which is demonstrated in the fact that you're prepared to stand up and to make the proclamation that the Lord is leading. Do you know, on a Monday morning, my knees ache and my legs ache, and I've discovered it's from standing up uh, on Sunday, perhaps more than I do any other uh, time during the week. If you don't want to be heard, then remain seated and mumble. We use the expression, stand up and be counted, because there's an action that takes place when you stand up, and indeed you are counted because people can see who you are. So on the plane of Jura, when uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were there in that crowd, and when the music started, the band plays, all the different instruments begin, there's the big statue in front of them, and they remain standing, and everybody else is bowing down to the statue. Now, of course, there were great consequences for them because they were prepared to make that stand. We know exactly what took place for them. And here in Acts 2, verse 14, we see that Peter stood up. But notice carefully that he didn't stand up on his own, but with the 11 other apostles. And we're also told that Peter raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Because he's determined to be heard. Now why are the details, which perhaps may seem insignificant to us, presented here in the scriptures? Are they just filler words? To fill the space in the scriptures? No, 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 they're not. Not at all. We need to see what is taking place and why this detail is contained here. Because God, in his given and, and gracious giving of his word doesn't waste words. And we read and we listen to the whole of Scripture. The key is that Peter stood up with the eleven. Peter did not just give his own perspective. He didn't just give his own interpretation. No, he stands together with the other apostles because they are in agreement. And they're all anxious to show solidarity and unity in what is being spoken. They want people to know that they are in agreement. And Peter stands with the other apostles. And I want to state this morning that in good preaching today, I believe that we need to stand with the apostles. And so in that sense, I hold two what I believe is called apostolic preaching. And it was a, an understanding, a clear understanding as I grew up, that that was what was important. The apostles were given a special place of authority in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if any of you have read your New Testament, you will understand that straight away. There is a very special place of authority that has been given to the apostles within the church within the scriptures that we have before us. It wasn't just simply for the first century church. It's for us today. 
and we have the New Testament scriptures before us. If you look at Acts 42, uh, sorry, Acts 2 and, and verse 42, you will see that after the 3,000 were converted on the day of Pentecost, and as they listened to Peter preach, we read this, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They knew what they needed to do, and they did it. And in Paul's letter to the Galatians, we see what happens when people turn away from apostolic doctrine and teaching. There in Galatians, these guys called the Judaizers come in, and they start to say, actually, this gospel business is not enough. You need to become Jewish first. And that's not what the apostles ever stated. And so you see that if we turn away and if we walk away from the apostolic teaching, the apostolic doctrine, apostolic preaching, we discover that it is very easy for false teaching to come in. And that is why we need to be sure that we are holding very clearly to the apostolic doctrine and teaching that is presented for us here in the New Testament. It's interesting that in Ephesians 2 and verse 20, it's a verse that we've probably all read before, but if we ever really stop to listen to it, having been built on the foundation of the apostles, that's the word that's given first, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Ephesians 2.20. So this is the church of Jesus Christ, and among its foundations are the apostles and the prophets. And of course, Jesus Christ is himself the chief cornerstone. And the reason why we need to consider this this morning is simply that the apostles and what they have written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not just for historical context, but it is for the church today because it is part of the New Testament that we all hold in our hands. It is the preserved writings of the apostles themselves. When the canon of uh, New Testament scripture was brought together, and uh, I've read a little bit on, on this, it's interesting that there wasn't sort of like a big committee that said, now hold on a minute, which books are we going to put together for the New Testament? Okay, well, you know, there's these, we'll give those a go, whatever. It didn't happen like that, but there was a recognition over a period of around 300 years that these were the books that would come to form the New Testament because of their association with the apostles. In other words, the apostles' teaching was recognized for the authority that it had. And there is a recognition of a process that took place as, as people recognized this. And it wasn't until AD 367, it took 300 years before you found the 27 books appearing in the same list together. But the criteria of recognizing them was asking the question, what is their relationship to the apostles? What is their relationship to those who were there? To those at Pentecost? 
and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, some of you will say, but hold on a moment, not all of the New Testament was written by an apostle, and you're absolutely right in that sense. Luke, for example, wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he's not an apostle. In fact, there's evidence to suggest that he wasn't even Jewish, and the evidence is relatively strong. His name is a Gentile name. And if you turn to Colossians 4 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul goes through a list of names of people who were involved with him in the work and in his ministry for the Lord Jesus. And he only listed or included those who were Jewish. And Luke is not in that list. He says, these are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are not of the circumcision. Luke is not included. Now, Paul penned more uh, books in the New Testament, but Luke wrote more words. Now, that's a surprise, isn't it? So Luke actually has more space, if you like, than even Paul does. So how do we reconcile this with the statements that we're making? But Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. He traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Luke heard firsthand experience of everything that was being spoken of. And, and he hears what the Apostle Paul preaches and, and has to say. He talks with him and he discusses things with him. And then if you go to the beginning of Luke's Gospel, he says that he has painstakingly researched all that he is going to present in his Gospel. And of course, presumably, we would assume that he has spoken to the Apostles and asked them questions has got details from them and Luke is recognized that he carries apostolic insight and apostolic authority Mark wasn't an apostle either but he was a friend of Peter and he became a companion of Paul Mark was too young to be a disciple of Jesus and therefore to be an apostle but Mark, which is the oldest, the earliest of the Gospels, is understood quite reliably, as we look at church history, to be the Gospel from Peter's perspective. So again, we have uh, the apostolic authority. James and John were not apostles, but they were both half-brothers of Jesus. And so they ran from the very beginning, and James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem within very, very early days, and he recognized and both are recognized as being intimately connected both with our Lord Jesus himself and with the apostles. And of course, Matthew, John, Peter, and Paul, the other writers of the New Testament, were apostles themselves. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it is recognized to carry apostolic insight and apostolic authority because Christianity is the teaching of Jesus Christ preserved in the writings and ministry of the apostles. And that's why sometimes it's referred to as the apostolic faith. Can we all remember that line in the Nicene Creed? Do I have to remind you? We don't often read these things. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But do we really? In an article in Time magazine, it was stated that evangelicalism is a 20th century phenomena. That's absolute rubbish. <laughs> okay? Absolute rubbish. 
the measure to which evangelicalism is consistent with the apostolic New Testament shows that it is not a 20th century phenomenon. It didn't start in the last century. It may have flourished in some areas, but it didn't start then. It didn't begin with the ministry of John Wesley, even though we like singing uh, John Wesley and Charles Wesley hymns, but it didn't begin then. It didn't begin with Jonathan Edwards. And it didn't begin with the Reformation in the 16th century with John Calvin. It goes right back to the early scriptures and the historic message that originated in our Lord Jesus, which was communicated through the apostles and is preserved for us in the word of God. And therefore, preaching is the unfolding of the apostolic message. And every preacher needs to ask this question when he stands up to preach. Am I standing on the foundation of the apostles? Just as Peter did here in Acts chapter 2 and many other places. And by the way, this is why we encourage you to bring your Bibles to church to make sure that what is being spoken of is the word of God. You could say that perhaps Billy Graham was one of the greatest apostolic preachers, certainly in the last uh, last hundred years. I give an example, and it's it's one that's quite personal in a sense, because my father was brought to faith through Billy Graham. I know there are many people that can be somewhat critical, um, perhaps of the style, and yet I would suggest to you that when you look at Acts two, Billy Graham contained many. Of, of the absolute characteristics of apostolic preaching that are contained here complete with a challenge to people as to where they stand, exhorting people as to where they stand. But back in, uh, in England in 1954, which was the year my father came to faith when Billy Graham was preaching for 12 weeks in a row, And the impact of his preaching on Britain was great. And my father was one of those people who came to faith during that time, just as Charles Charles Price was. And it's uh, fascinating to talk to Charles over that. And it reminded me of so many things that my father had said. But the major denominations in Britain at that time were liberal uh, in, in, in many cases. And during a press conference towards the end of the meetings that Billy Graham had conducted, he was asked... This question, are you aware the church and denominational leaders here in the UK are saying that you've put Christianity back 50 years? To which Billy Graham replies and says, well, if it's only 50 years, I'm really sorry because I failed. I wanted to put it back 2,000 years because that is the apostolic preaching that we need to see. His goal was Christianity back 2,000 years. Ephesians 2.20 again. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So we have to go back to the original words spoken by the apostles. And sadly, there is a great deal of preaching today that simply does not stand up with the apostles' teaching. It is contrary to the apostles' preaching and indeed teaching. I was reading an account of a church that has got itself really well organized, obviously better than us here. And one of the things is that they like to grade their uh, Sunday school uh, children. And they can move from one grade to another by completing basically some sort of test. 
And I forget which grade it was to move from, but from one of them to move to the next grade, they had to heal somebody, okay? Now, I, when, I, when I listened and, w- and was reading this, I was thinking to myself, hold on a minute, this is fascinating stuff. It claimed to be apostolic in its teaching as a church. And so that's why I realized that there are problems today because sometimes these words are associated with teaching and preaching, which is absolutely not apostolic. And so we discover these things set in. But what, what is the theme of the Bible? What is it? The theme of the Bible is absolutely salvation, the message of salvation. If you start off in Genesis 3 verse 15 where we have what is uh, described as the proto-evangelium, which is the, the verse, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first place of the gospel being presented. So right back at the beginning of scripture and then we go to the very end, Revelation 22 verse 17, almost the last words that are spoken and we read this, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Is there any part of that you don't understand? This is the tenor of Scripture. This is the theme of Scripture. But listening to some preaching today, you'd be hard-pressed to work that out. The message of Scripture is salvation. Salvation from unrighteousness to righteousness. That's the theme of the book of, of Romans. It's salvation from condemnation to justification. It's salvation from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's salvation from guilt to cleansing. It's salvation from hell to heaven. These are all aspects of what salvation is and the theme of the whole of Scripture essentially is reconciliation to God. And all these things are consequences of that. And to preach that is to stand up with the apostles. Not just the reformers of the 1500s but to stand with the apostles and to proclaim the gospel. But when our preaching gives the impression that salvation is, for example, from sickness to health, or from poverty to prosperity, or from oppression to liberation, then we're not standing on the foundation of the apostles. Why? Because that was not their message. Now, of course, this is not to say that God does not heal. God does heal. But it's not the primary message that the apostles preached. The apostles didn't hold healing campaigns. It may be that people prosper as they live their lives under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think about it, inevitably that's the case. The drunk stops drinking. The gambler stops gambling. The person who spends all their money on pleasure decides because the Holy Spirit is working within them that that's not the way to live. And somebody said to me, why are Christians all middle class? Well, inevitably, because we can't help but be careful. It may be that there is liberation from political oppression. And through history, we thank God for the influence 
of the Christian church, for instance, that brought about the abolition of slavery. What an appalling blight that that was. And we thank God for those consequences of the gospel. But to stand up with the apostles is to declare the message that human beings can be reconciled to God. And I say this reverently, the rest is detail. And so the question we must always ask when listening to preaching is simply this, is this what the apostles would have preached? Is this what the apostles would have preached? Sometimes you hear pastors say and make a statement and then they, and then they, 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 they say, and, and scripture backs me up here. Well, that's not the way we handle Scripture. We're not here to make statements and then look for something in Scripture to back us up. What we need to come is to present Scripture and to preach as the apostles did so very, very clearly. For example, people will say all sorts of things and try and get Scripture to back them up. I, I was staggered by meeting a Catholic person recently who just said to me it was just so important that the bread and the wine actually turn into the body and the blood of Christ as you take communion. And they quoted John 6:53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But when we take scripture out of context, we can make it say whatever we want it to say. Because the context that Jesus was preaching in, he was talking about the manna in the desert. And our Lord makes the point and says, I am the bread of life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This verse means a great deal to me and I know it's meant a great deal to people who have come into this tent because it is the word that gives us the encouragement. It is the apostolic word that has been spoken of by the Apostle Paul. It is the declaration that we have. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Friends, are you in Christ? Have you come to faith in the Savior? J.I. Packer had made this statement concerning the Apostle Paul's preaching. He said, Paul, in his own estimation, was not a philosopher, not a moralist, not one of the world's wise men, but simply Christ's herald. His master had given him a message to proclaim and Paul's whole business was to deliver that message with exact and studious faithfulness, adding nothing, altering nothing, and omitting nothing. He was to deliver it not as another of people's bright ideas, but as a word from God spoken in Christ's name, carrying Christ's authority, and authenticated in the hearers by the convicting Holy Spirit. And if Paul made sure that he added nothing, he altered nothing, he omitted nothing, 
then so must we as we preach the apostolic message. And so, our first point before we look at this going forward is absolutely what is it that we're preaching? We must ensure that it is the truth. And as we preach and as we stand And the message that has been brought through the Holy Spirit by the apostles. We thank God for the truth that is ours. Lastly, one quote from uh, a man by the name of C.H. Dodd. He was a professor in the 1930s at, uh, of divinity at Cambridge University. And he wrote a book entitled The Apostolic Doctrine and Its Developments. And he identifies in his book what he calls the kerygma, which is the Greek word meaning preaching taken from the New Testament. And he contrasts the kerygma, preaching, with the word didiskine, which is the Greek word for teaching. And he points out how important kerygma is. There is preaching and there is teaching. Now in the scriptures, both words are used at different times. And his conclusion from examining the preaching that is contained in the New Testament of the early church was that the kerygma is the proclamation of facts concerning the life, death, resurrection, and lordship of Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the consummation of this age with the return of Christ. This is the message of the New Testament. That is the message contained in the preaching that we have, says C.H. Dodd, followed by a call to repentance. And this is what preaching should be about today. Preaching is summed up in one word. Christ. Christ. That's it. So we look forward as we begin to actually look at the message itself. But don't be tempted to preach anything else than Jesus Christ and talk about his life talk about his death talk about his res resurrection talk about the Holy Spirit talk about the fact he's returning and encourage people exhort people 